care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very own selves. Because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and uh, toil. We work night and day and we might not, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is God's word. We began our study of this passage last week by looking at verses 1 to 12 from this very chapter. And as we did that, we drew three things out from these 12 verses. Gospel proclamation, gospel identity, and gospel care. Now, we looked at gospel proclamation and gospel identity last week. This week, we're going to be looking at gospel care from verses 5 to 12, the passage that we just read. And today, as we look at gospel care, I'd like to draw three things for us from the passage we read out today. First is the call to gospel care. Second, the nature of gospel care. And third, the motivation for gospel care. The call to gospel care, the nature of gospel care, and the motivation to gospel care. Those are the three things we're going to be looking at this morning. Let's start with a call to gospel care. This passage talks about how Paul loved the Thessalonian church like a father and a mother. And that's really the title of the sermon to fathers and mothers. And in this passage, Paul is presenting the biological family as the paradigm on which gospel care is to be extended to the church family. We are called to love one another like family. We may not fully grasp the the, the, the full implications, the full meaning of what this would have meant to the Thessalonians when Paul wrote this to them. This was a new church plant. Uh, Paul actually planted the first church in the city of uh, Thessalonica. And the gospel had never been preached there before. Paul was the first person to come there and preach the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And as the gospel was being preached, and as people were coming to faith in Christ Jesus, many of them would have been disowned by their biological family because they had embraced a new faith. Some of us, uh, even today, can relate to that. And so there were all these new believers in Thessalonica that had no biological families because their families had forsaken them because they'd embraced new faith. And the church was their only family. That's what was happening in the church in Thessalonica. I know what that 
uh, feels like. Um, most of you know that, that I come from a Hindu Brahmin background. And uh, many years ago, in 1993, uh, when I became a follower of Jesus, when God helped me to put my faith in, in Christ Jesus, I kind of went through a, a little bit of a rough patch for being uh, questioned, uh, for being uh, perhaps even hated, because I had chosen to believe in Jesus. And I understand that. I understand how people around me would have felt when my family, especially my dear and dear ones, how I understand that they wouldn't have been happy. I, I absolutely understand and respect the way they would have felt. But the fact was they, they weren't happy. And, um, and uh, so, so it, was, it was a bit of a challenging time. And, and in that time, you know, I, I, did, it, I had a sense of as if I had lost my own biological family. But there were a couple of families in the church community that, that I was part of that really took me in. They cared for me, not that my biological parents didn't, but because of this, there was a little bit of a, a, a tension there. But these two families really took me in. They cared for me as they cared for their own children. And I felt loved and I felt secure. And, uh, and that was such a blessing to me in that, in that season. So quite obviously, uh, what Paul is writing to this church 2,000 years ago is still relevant even today. And like me, I'm sure there are quite a few people in New City itself and in the larger church as well who are first-generation believers who can relate to what I'm talking about. The church as a family is also relevant today because of the sad and the painful reality that there are many dysfunctional families today. Many biological families, sadly, are not working as beautifully as they were designed to work. And so the church is a place of love and refuge, even for people who are struggling in dysfunctional families. So the call to love one another in the church family, just as we love one another in the biological family, is as relevant now as it was when Paul was writing this letter to the Thessalonians. Jesus spoke a fair bit about the link between the biological family and the faith family. Jesus, of course, affirmed the biological family. But without a shred of doubt, Jesus definitely also called us to rethink how we prioritize the biological family. In one instance, uh, there was a large crowd that was traveling with Jesus. And Jesus turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That's in the Gospel of Luke chapter 14, verse 26 and 27. Jesus did nudge us to move beyond our biological family to embrace a new family, the church. Don't hear me wrong. Jesus is not doing away with the biological family. He's not making it secondary, but he is calling for a greater integration between the biological family and the faith family. Jesus 
did not call us. Jesus did not call us to love our biological families less than we should. But without doubt, Jesus is calling us to love our larger church family, larger faith family, more than we are. We all belong to two families. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, the biological family and the faith family or the church family. One day, when Christ comes again, all these differences are going to go away and we are all going to be part of one large family. And as we wait for Christ to come again and to make this beauty a reality, we tend to err in two ways. We tend to err by over-focusing on the biological family and we tend to err by under-focusing on the biological family. We err by over-focusing on the biological family when we kind of make that the absolute and only priority. Even God is secondary. And, and the church family comes, faith family comes a distant third. Right? That's one way of erring. The second way of erring is by under-focusing on the biological family. And, and, and people in ministry, people leading the church, uh, not just full-time pastors, but even other leaders, are kind of vulnerable to this. And we're all vulnerable to kind of neglect our biological families as we kind of sometimes get, get caught in, in the busyness and all the things that are happening in ministry. We, you know, so it's quite challenging for pastors, kids sometimes. So both are equal and opposite errors. And as I said earlier, Jesus is not calling us to love our biological families less than we should. But Jesus is definitely calling us to love our larger church family more than we are. This is the call to gospel care. To love those in the faith family just as we love those in the biological family. That's the first thing that I wanted to draw for us, the call to gospel care. The second thing that I want to draw for us from this passage is the nature of gospel care. This again brings us to the main theme of the sermon, fathers and mothers. Paul loved the church in Thessalonica like a father and a mother. Look at verse 7 and then verse 11 in the passage that we read. Verse 7, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That's verse 7. Let's look at verse 11. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. Exhorted you, encouraged you, and charged you. Three things. To walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Paul is using the imagery of the father and mother to communicate an idea of wholesome and complete love. In doing this, he's calling us to see the many different expressions of love. We tend to treat love as one idea or as one word. But in truth, there are so many different expressions of love. A careful study of the imagery of the father and mother that Paul is using and the choice of words he's using uh, will help us 
uh, get a good picture of the wholesome and complete love of God. First, Paul uses the imagery of a mother nursing, nursing a helpless infant at her breast. The infant is helpless. The infant just cannot help herself. The infant needs the mother to do everything. And sometimes, even though we might be adults biologically, spiritually, sometimes we are as helpless as infants. Maybe we're struggling with a sin pattern that we're just not able to overcome. And so, so in many instances, we are as helpless as infants. And we need others to help us. And that's okay. That's the love of a mother nursing her infant. The second imagery that Paul uses is that of a father loving his child. And as we, as I read verse 11 and 12, we saw three verses. Let me read those verses again. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk, walk in a manner worthy of God. So three words that Paul is using to describe how a father loves his children. Exhorted, encouraged, and charged. These are pretty common words in English. Uh, but the English translations don't capture the full depth and beauty of the original idea that Paul was communicating when he wrote this originally in the Greek language in a Greco-Roman Jewish context. I can assure you, I I am no Greek scholar, uh, but I'm going to try and give you a little bit of understanding of what these words really meant in the original language. The first word Paul used is the word exhort. The English meaning of the word exhort is, is pretty obvious. But the original text used uh, in Greek for this word is the word parakaleo. Parakaleo, it's a familiar word for some of us. This original word communicates two powerful ideas. First, this literally means walking alongside. Walking alongside. So the exhortation is not from a father who is distant and distant and most of the time far away and comes in once in a while to exhort his child. Not at all. That's not the image being communicated by this word parakaleo. This communicates the image of a father who's lovingly walking alongside his child and spending lots and lots and lots of time with the child. And it is from this posture of walking alongside, he exhausts the child. Imagine this visually. Imagine someone sitting across the table and exhorting you. Now imagine the same person walking beside you with his hand around your shoulder and then exhorting you. You see the difference? That's what parakleo means. It means to walk alongside and exhort in the journey of walking together. There's also a second nuance to the word parakaleo. It communicates the idea of warm, friendly, and winsome exhortation. This is not harsh and demanding exhortation. This is warm and winsome exhortation. That's the first word, exhort or parakaleo. The second word Paul is using here is encouraged. Uh, This comes from the Greek word 
parametheomai. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing the Greek right. Parametheomai, uh, parametheomai. The original meaning of the word is actually closer to the word console than it is to the word encouraged. This word too includes coming alongside, but it includes a comforting in sorrow or in guilt. Just to give us another context where this word was used so we can appreciate this word better. Uh, many of us would remember the story of how uh, there was this family, two sisters and a brother, Lazarus, Mary and Martha, and Lazarus died. And Jesus came and made Lazarus rise again from the dead. But as they were waiting before all that happened, after Lazarus had died, Mary and Martha were grieving. And as this verse in John chapter 11, verse 19, which said, many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to parametheomai them considering concerning their brother. So they had come, the English word is console them, to console them concerning their brother. That's the meaning of the word parametheomai. We all have several moments of grieving. We live in a broken world and there is much reason for grief. Not only is this world broken, but but we are broken too. Yes, we have been redeemed by Christ. And we're all waiting for for Christ to come back and take away every inclination to sin that is maybe remaining in us. And so we wait. And as we wait and grieve the broken world, we also wait and grieve our own sin. Sinners too need to be consoled, repentant sinners. Not intentional sinners, not unrepentant sinners, but repentant sinners. All of us, in some way or the other, are struggling to overcome different sin patterns in our own lives. And we need someone to sit along with us and console us, not condone our sin, but console us even as we repentantly seek the power of God to overcome that sin pattern. So we need to be consoled. We need to be strengthened in in grace to genuinely repent and grieve over our sins. And there are many other instances where we do need to grieve and this lockdown has given us all many reasons for grief. And so we need one another in our grieving. The third word that Paul uses to express the love of the Father is the word charged. I charge you. That's the meaning of that word. It comes from the uh, Greek word marturio, marturio. It literally means to bear witness or to testify. Imagine a father cheering his young child uh, learning to ride a bicycle. The child's on the cycle and the father's cheering, saying, you can do this. You you got this. What's the father doing here? The father's actually saying, I see in you the the capability, the capacity, the skills. I see in you the skills you, you need to learn the bicycle. So go do it because I see the skill in you. And the father is actually saying, I am bearing witness to your capability to do this. I am testifying, son, to your capability to ride the cycle. And so go ahead and do this. That's what the word charge means, to testify in the original people, to bear witness to. And in the faith family context, the father is not merely bearing testimony 
a witness to something good in the child itself, but he is bearing witness to what the gospel has done in the child, to what Jesus has done in us. So when someone in our faith family comes alongside and tells us, you are not a slave to sin, you've been redeemed by Jesus, that's charging us. When someone comes alongside and says, God has a call on your life, I see in your call to leadership and God is going to help you grow in his call upon your life. When someone comes alongside us and tells us it is not, it is for freedom. It is for freedom that Christ Jesus has set you free. When someone encourages us by saying, you're not ransomed by gold or silver, but we are ransomed by the precious blood of the Lamb. God has called you to be a blessing to others. That is charging someone in, in faith. What does this do to us? It inspires in us a desire and a strength for righteous living. Those are the three words that Paul is using to describe how he as a father loved the people in the Thessalonian church. We're all called to love each other like that. He exhorted them, Parakaleo. He encouraged them, Parametheomai. And he charged them, Marturia. I hope you experienced at least a little bit of all this in your city. At least a little bit. And if you have, if you have experienced at least a little bit of all this in your city, here's what I'd like you to think about. Who have you loved like this in the past one month? Is there anyone outside of your biological family that you have deeply loved like this, as Paul is describing, as a father and as a mother. Loving someone outside of our biological family like this, it involves a lot of effort. It involves a lot of investment. It involves a lot of sacrifice. Over the last month, couple of months, have we loved people outside of our biological family like this? This, this kind of love is the biblical call, not only on leaders and pastors, this is the biblical call on every one of our lives. When we are new believers, and even later, we receive this kind of love from others in the faith community. And as we grow and mature, we're also called to extend this kind of love to others in the church family. A couple of more thoughts on this. The word exhort and charge also include a certain element of lovingly calling out someone. Some of us have defined love in a certain way. And we are only open to that expression of love. So some of us, we only want to be emotionally cuddled and comforted. We don't want to be called out. We don't want to be exhorted. We don't want to be charged. We only want to be comforted. And some of us even want to continue wallowing in our sin and sorrow. We want people to say, don't worry. It's okay. It's all right. 
it's okay. This is real. This is needed. This is beautiful. And it's a very important expression of love. But this is not complete. Wholesome love. True and wholesome love. The kind of love the Bible talks about. The kind of love that Paul is talking about. The kind of love he extended to the church in Thessalonia. That kind of love. That kind of true and wholesome love will give tender comfort and it will also lovingly calm. Wholesome love will comfort, yes, but it will also exhort and charge and lovingly calm. Lovingly telling a friend, hey, I think you may be wrong here, is as important an expression of love as it is to just hug and hug them and be with them in their struggles. Both are important. We need both to complete true and wholesome love. In some sense, we all tend to live with a truncated idea of love. We demand to be loved within the narrow confines of our truncated notion of love. But Paul is calling us to a more wholesome experience of love, both in extending this kind of love to others and also receiving this kind of love from others in our faith community, in our church community. You know, at this stage, you're probably wondering how anything I've said is concerned, is connected with a larger theme of waiting well. That's the theme of the series on the book of 1 Thessalonians. Now let me let me kind of help us make that connection. Loving one another, helping one another grow is such an important part of waiting well for the second coming of Christ Jesus. Waiting for Jesus Christ to come back is not an individual journey. It's a larger communal journey that we are all called to make together as a church. And that brings us to the third and the last thing that I'd like to draw for us from this passage. The motivation for gospel care. How on earth are we going to find the power to love people like this? How on earth are we going to love our larger faith family as much as we love our smaller biological How on earth are we going to find the motivation to invest in people like this? And I will be totally honest here. In this season of the lockdown, I'm personally struggling with this. On the one hand, I'm desperately uh, missing meeting people physically. I'm desperately missing gathering together for worship. That's real. That's true. But on the other hand, I have also become comfortable in hiding in my cave. I'm I'm basically an introvert by nature and I've just withdrawn in the lockdown into my own cave. And I have to confess that I'm experiencing a sinful disinclination to engage with people. So how on earth am I going to find the motivation to love and invest in people like the way Paul is describing? The answer is right here in this passage in verse 8. Allow me to read this verse. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but 
also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Look at what, what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, I love you so much that I will not only share the gospel with you, but I will also share my own life with you. I will share my ready self with you. And so there are two things that are happening here. First, Paul came to Thessalonica and he began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, as he was preaching the gospel of Christ to the people of Thessalonica, he not only shared the gospel, he began to share his very self, loving them like a father and a mother. And the answer to the question, how do we love people like this? The answer to that question lies right here in the sequence of these two events. Paul is not only saying that I loved you so much that I gave myself to you and began preaching the gospel with you, to you. But Paul is also saying that as I began sharing the gospel with you, I began loving you more and more and I gave my very self to you. Paul is saying, as I began sharing the gospel with you more and more, I began loving you more and more. And I begin, began to give myself to you. You became very dear to us as I began sharing the gospel. This is the secret to loving others well. As we proclaim the gospel, who Jesus is, what he has done for us, as we proclaim the gospel to one another, as we begin talking about Jesus to one another, we grow in our fondness for one another. We grow in our love for one another. You see, we cannot love one another more just by trying harder. We learn to love one another more and more as we learn to enjoy Jesus together more and more. If you're from New City, think of your journey in New City. Isn't this true? Haven't you and I began, begun to love people more and more as we began enjoying Jesus more and more together in community? I want to close with a, with a fascinating story. A few, a few years ago, it's a real story. A few years ago, the beer company, Heineken, they did a social experiment. And it was part of their branding, of course. But it was a very interesting social experiment. What Heineken did was they bought two peoples, two people with opposing views on a certain subject together in a room. For example... Um, one of those two people uh, was a great activist for transgenders. I mean, he, he believed that people could, can change, can be gender fluid, they can change the gender as they want. And there was another person who was totally opposed to that. And so they bought these two people. One, another example, one believed in climate change and was a climate change activist, and the other believed that climate change was all one. So they bought people with opposite views together in a room, but they knew nothing about each other. And before they put the two of them together in a room, they had shot videos of each of them fiercely arguing their point of view. But the other person did not know that, right? When they walked into the room, they just had to build DIY furniture, do-it-yourself furniture. And they did that and they kind of got to know each other as they built something together. And uh, at the end of that, 
then there was, it was like a reality show. They played a video uh, in which uh, <clears throat> they played a video in which, um, sorry, they played a video in which the views of each person, the fears views of each person was kind of uh, shared. So the person, for example, the person who believed in climate change got to hear the views of the person who did not. The person who did not believe in the climate change, he got to hear the person who did. And they were kind of shocked because they had worked together for a few hours and they kind of were really shocked that the person they had worked together had views that were completely against each other. And, uh, and so when they played the video, then they said, they gave them each a Heineken beer and they said, you can uh, share a beer and talk about your differences or you, you can just choose to go your own ways and never see the other person ever again in your life. And they did that experiment with, I think, four or five sets of two people each. And every one of those people chose to have that beer together and discuss the differences. Here's a point I'm trying to make. I'll make a point on the Heineken social experiment. I'll connect that to our reality, the gospel reality. Shared experiences can teach us to love one another despite our differences. Building the do-it-yourself furniture together is a shared experience. Having a beer together is a shared experience. But in seeing the goodness of the Heineken experiment, I'm also inviting us to see another shared experience that we all have that is infinitely more powerful, that is infinitely more beautiful than having a beer together. When you and I, as the faith family, when you and I share the experience of having been saved from our sins by Jesus Christ dying on the cross, paying the punishment for our sins. When we share that experience of God himself dying on the cross to purchase for us forgiveness for our sins, when you and I share that experience, how and invest in one another. If beer flowing freely from a tap can bring people together, how much more the blood of Jesus flowing freely from the cross of Calvary? How much more should the blood of Jesus flowing freely from the cross of Calvary empower us to love one another, care for one another, invest in one another, persevere with one another, phobia with one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, despite whatever differences we might have. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the blood of Jesus, for his sacrifice that brings us together for Christ Jesus who reconciles man to God and man to man, especially, Lord, in this world where we see so many differences, racial conflicts, communal violence. Lord Jesus, you are the answer to all of these. And we pray, Lord, may more and more people have the shared experience 
of being redeemed by the blood of Christ Jesus, that we might all learn to love one another as you had originally designed the world to be. Thank you. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.